Welcome to the Painesville Assembly of God podcast. We're always encouraged to know God is working through this ministry to touch lives. So if you have a story to share of how God is working in your life, please let us know by sending us an email at info at Now prepare your heart to hear a word from God today. Welcome. We're in part five of our series, Salt and Light Living, part five. And uh, again, we've been studying Matthew chapter five and uh, looking at uh, Jesus, what's known at commonly as the Sermon on the Mount. And in Matthew chapter five, 13 through 16, uh, Jesus is talking to his followers and he says to them, you're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. And so we're in a series called Salt and Light Living as we talk about what does that mean to live as salt and light in this world. As believers, we're taught that we live according to kingdom principles. We live according to uh, a different standard of citizenship. Our citizenship is in heaven. How many would agree with that? And, uh, and we're part of the kingdom of God. We might be uh, a part of the United States of America. We might be American citizens. But as believers in Jesus Christ, we have another citizenship, and that is a citizenship in the kingdom of heaven. And uh, so how do our lives serve as salt and light uh, within the darkness of the decay of our world. Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 16, in the same way, let your light so shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So as followers of Jesus Christ, we are called to live in such a way that our lives and our deeds, the things that we do, the way that we live our lives, brings honor and glory to God. We're to live in such a way that we are salt and we are light in this world, and, uh, and because of that, there is a different set of criteria that we follow. There's a, a different set of, of, of character qualities that are birthed in us as the attitudes of Jesus Christ. So we started with what's known as the Beatitudes. We talked about the inward change of character, and then we looked at our influence. We're called to be salt and light. And now, as we looked at last week, Jesus begins to give some examples of the difference that, it, that, that those who are followers in his kingdom ought to live. And he focuses not simply on the external, but what he focuses on is the motives of the heart. When it comes to the Sermon on the Mount, C.S. Lewis is someone who often had faced accusations that he wasn't a very good kind of Christian. Uh, in fact, maybe it was because uh, his, his works were too broadly appealing, or maybe some figured that because so many people were flocking to his lectures that perhaps he was a false teacher in some way. And uh, on one such of occasion, there was an accusation made against Lewis that suggested that, that he couldn't be trusted because he didn't like, or in quotes, he didn't care for the Sermon on the Mount. And, and so in Lewis's re rejoinder to Dr. Pittenger, uh, this is how he responded to that idea that he didn't care for the Sermon on the Mount. He responded to his critics in this way in saying this, he said, I, if, means, if liking means enjoying, then I suppose no one cares for it. Who can like being not, knocked flat on his face with a sledgehammer? I can hardly imagine a more deadly spiritual condition than the man who can read that passage with tranquil pleasure. 
So I, I wanted to say that up front because I think that Lewis is right. I, I think C.S. Lewis is right that when we read through the Sermon on the Mount, there are some things in there that rub so much against our own sinful nature or so much against the way in which our culture moves and goes that we can't help but feel a sense of conviction and a sense of which we've been hit over the head by a sledgehammer. In fact, when we take a look at following the kingdom principles and ethics, it implies that we have a greater king that we submit to. Amen. There's a greater king ultimately that we serve. And so setting aside self oftentimes can make us squirm a little bit. And Jesus expressed that kingdom citizens' character about the law of God is not something that is simply an external law, but rather when we receive Jesus Christ, He transforms our heart, and His laws are written on our hearts on the inside of us. In fact, if you read the book of Ezekiel and the prophecy that He gave, it said that God would put literally a new heart inside of us. And if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, that's what being a believer is all about. It is about a transformed heart. It's about a transformed heart. And uh, and so the law written on our heart and how we live begins to come to life in some of these examples that Jesus gives. So we're going to tackle some challenging subjects today. Can I just be honest with you right up front? We are going to hit some subjects that are extremely challenging today, and we're going to want to push back. And, and we're, we're, we're going we're gonna to want to push against these things, and they're very challenging today. And, uh, and so Jesus begins to illustrate what he, means by, uh, what, what he means by fulfilling the law. In fact, he says this, for I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. So in talking about righteousness, Jesus isn't lowering the bar, Jesus actually raises the bar. And he begins to give six illustrations. We looked at two of them last week, two examples last week of external versus internal righteousness when we talked about the areas of murder and adultery. And we talked about the idea of hate, and we talked about the idea of harboring bitterness. We talked about the idea of the words that come out of our mouth that Jesus looks at and says, you're just as guilty of murder if you hate somebody, if you harbor unforgiveness against them in your heart. You say, you fool. That's a hard thing to tackle, isn't it? Jesus also tackled the idea of adultery by not just the physical act, by the very lust of the eyes. And he said that if you even look with lust, you've committed adultery where? In your heart. Again, following this, Jesus, this teaching on murder and, and, and adultery, Jesus begins talking now about the institution of marriage. He begins to talk about the idea of divorce, and he begins to talk about swearing of oaths. And I just want to state right up front that if you uh, are a victim of divorce, if you're somebody that has experienced divorce and the pain of divorce, please understand my heart today as we begin to share that in no way am I wanting to heap guilt and condemnation upon anyone today. In fact, Scripture says there is no, therefore no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. I understand divorce is very painful. I understand that there are situations uh, of, of abuse. There are situations of abandonment. There are situations of adultery. There are, there are situations that become very painful. 
Uh, as a 12-year-old uh, young man, uh, young boy, I guess you would say, my parents went through a divorce when I was 12. And I do not understand that necessarily from their perspective as husband and wife. But I do understand the very pain that that brings even down to the family, even down to children. And I know that that's a very painful thing. And so I want to handle this with care today and sensitivity. Yet at the same time, I want to speak truth from God's word because there is a very casual approach within our culture today towards marriage. There's a very casual approach today towards keeping your word and promises, and we, we might say taking oaths, but at the same time, keeping your word is not one of those things that is, is, is something that we trust today. It used to be that when someone gave you a handshake and gave you their word, there was something you can count on, but today there's a lot of mistrust everywhere in our culture today because there's a lot of broken oaths, there's a lot of broken promises, there's a lot of words that have been spoken maybe just quickly without understanding the weight of those things and that is seeped into marriage and family. And so I want to take a look today, what does Jesus talk about? What is Jesus sharing about? So let's look at the passage as a whole today, starting in Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to begin right in verse 31. And this is what it says, it has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce, but I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her a victim of adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you've heard that it was said from the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for uh, it is God's throne, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of, his great, of the great king. Do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to simply say is yes or no. Anything beyond that, Scripture says, comes from the evil one. Now, at first glance, you might re read this and you say, well, what do these two have to do with each other? What, what does this have to do with each other? But I'd argue that they absolutely do go together. In fact, they both deal with a promise and the question, what will I do when keeping that promise is no longer fun, is no longer fulfilling, no longer easy, no longer interesting to me, no longer benefits me? What do I do when keeping that promise becomes difficult, becomes hard? And so today, I want to deal with these areas in reverse order. So we read it all together, and we know that the oath comes after the marriage and divorce, but I'd like to flip the script a little bit, and I'd like to talk about the area of the oath first. You see, when you swear an oath, you're promising to do whatever you are agreeing upon, and often you're calling on someone else or something else to back up the severity, the validity, the truthfulness, the trustworthiness of that promise. For example, you might swear to tell the whole truth uh, the, and nothing, or to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God, right? And what do they usually have you put your hand on? A Bible, right? At least it used to be that way. I haven't been in court in a while. It used to be that way. Why? We're, we're swearing. Why are we putting our hand on the Bible? Because we're saying, according to this standard, according to the backing of this word, I am telling you the truth. I mean that what I'm saying right now is something that you can trust. How many know that trust is a hard thing, isn't it? 
It's tough to trust people. It's trust, tough to trust people's word. In fact, I think that the heart of making an oath or a promise is, is the, the desire for people to believe that you will keep your word. In fact, when I was growing up, there was the old adage, cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. How many remember that one? <laughs> cross my heart. And, and then there was this. I don't know if you remember, but, but you know, somebody's trying to tell you, I, you can trust me. Cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. And then all of a sudden they would say, ah, but I had my fingers crossed. Right? Oh, I had my toes crossed, right? Or, or how about this one? A couple of people use this one. My shoelaces were crossed. Why? Because when we, we do that, we, we want them to believe us, but we're looking for a backdoor escape hatch. And I think that's a problem sometimes, is that often when we give our word, there is this little bit inside of us that wants to leave a door open just in case, a little bit of an escape hatch, a little bit of an excuse as to why we, we don't want to keep our word. We want to live in the best of both worlds. And see, at times when Jesus was speaking, at the time in which he was speaking, these same kind of linguistic gymnastics were taking place among the very people that, that, that he was around. In fact, you could have these caveats that they would swear by heaven or, or by earth, or they'd swear by Jerusalem, they'd swear by the temple, and, and those promises could be broken in various scenarios, but if you swore by God, that was an unbreakable oath. In fact, people became very creative in making their oaths that, that, that history tells us that the rabbis had to determine which was actually binding. And Jesus showed up and said, you know what, knock it off, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Quit, quit with all this stuff. Let's just get down to the bottom line of it. If you're going to make a promise, let your yes be yes and your no be no. It's that simple. And the question really is, do you need to add all of this stuff to the commitment and the promise that you make? Does that mean that if you don't make that commitment or promise, then the rest of the time you're not telling the truth? What, what, is, what does this mean? You see, when we start adding things to our simple, honest, direct speech, now people don't know whether they can truly trust or believe us or not. And as believers in Jesus Christ, what Jesus wants us to understand is that we ought to be a people who keeps our word. We ought to be a people that if we can't do something or we can't make a commitment, we simply say no. And if we're willing to make a commitment, we say yes. There's a lot of politeness in our society today, things that we try to say where we leave a back door open and, well, maybe, maybe I'll do this, or maybe, well, if the circumstances are just right, or, or you know, things like, I'll pray for you, and then we don't really pray, and, and uh, you know, I, if there's anything that you need at all, just let me know, but we don't really mean it. And what Jesus is saying is that as believers in Jesus Christ, our yes ought to be yes, our no ought to be no, we ought to be able to keep the commitments that come out of our mouths, people ought to be able to trust that. In fact, when we take a look at an interesting passage in Psalm chapter 15, it begins with the author asking a question. He asks this question, Psalm 15, 1, who may worship in your sanctuary, Lord? Who may enter your presence on your holy hill? In other words, the writer wants to know what kind of life, what kind of righteousness, what kind of life allows me to be in your presence, in your sanctuary. And it's interesting because the following verses begin to give the answer. And I just want to take a look at just two uh, verses in here that apply to what we're talking about right now. Verse two says this, 
those who lead a blameless those who lead blameless lives and do what is right and then look at this speaking the truth from sincere hearts speaking the truth from sincere hearts you see as followers of Jesus Christ speaking the truth out of the sincerity of our heart is something that is very important to the lord it matters to him And I think that's what Jesus meant by letting your yes be yes and your no be no. You can't be afraid of disappointing or or hurting someone, giving a polite response that you really don't mean. It might be really nice, but if it's not sincere, then it's not what Jesus is talking about. It ought to be the sincerity of our heart. A lack of sincerity erodes trust that people may have whether you can keep your word and all too often the promises we make and the things that we, we say we're going to do don't happen. These are the kinds of things that lead to a breakdown in relationships, a, a breakdown in business and leadership and family. And at this point, if you're not willing to keep your word, then don't give it. Don't give it. Don't give it. Don't try to use God's name or anything else to convince people that you will. As people who are called to be salt and light, if we don't keep our word, then it negatively impacts our testimony and our reputation as believers. And Jesus is calling us to be the kind of people whose character and reputation make it unnecessary to swear by anything else. Another phrase from Psalm 15 is found in the second half of verse 4. And and this is a challenging one. But Psalm 15, 4 says this, and keep their promises even when it hurts. And keep their promises even when it hurts. You see, those who live righteously keep promises even though it hurts. Oftentimes we make a commitment or a promise, but if it gets too difficult, if it gets too painful, if it's no longer beneficial or it's too hard, then I open the escape hatch and I'm looking for a way out. But the writer of the song says that those who walk righteously keep their promises even when it hurts. And that brings us to the second part and really the first part of the passage we looked at in talking about marriage and divorce. And again, do you see how it all fits together? Marriage begins with what? It begins with a vow. It begins with a promise. That's what marriage begins with. That's what marriage stops, a promise, a vow made to one another. And it may surprise you to know that when you look through Scripture and you, you look through the Bible, uh, oftentimes you'll see weddings in the Bible. But when you look at a wedding ceremony, it, there's no script of how a wedding ceremony is supposed to go. There's nothing in the Bible that says that you start with walking down the aisle and, and that you have to do the exchanging of rings and the exchange. There, there's no order of service when it comes to a wedding. But there is this, there is a vow that is made. In fact, that's, that's the very foundation in the declaration as a promise about how this relationship is going to be different from every one of our other relationships. How this relationship is going to be different. And there is a set of vows and a set of promises that accompany that, usually ending with, until death do us part. In other words, I'm going to keep these vows through thick and thin. Many vows are through richer or for poorer. Many vows that that come have to do with in sickness and in health. The problem is, is that oftentimes when we're making these vows, we're young and we're, 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 we're a little bit ignorant as to what that means. 
And so you end up in a situation where later on down the road, somebody that you're married to suddenly comes down with severe health problems, and all of a sudden you have to become a caregiver, and that is when the vows really become real. Or what happens when the economy is no longer good or you face a 2020-like season where your job isn't as stable or secure or you lose it or the finances are difficult and all of a sudden the richer becomes poorer and how do we stick it out? You see, there are vows, there are promises and that's what marriage is made upon. And we prove our commitment to the vows and the exchanging of rings, and and the vows make it official. But here's the question. In light of what we just said about taking oaths, what's uniquely different and important about this vow? Should you be trusted when you make a wedding vow? Under what circumstances should you be able to get out of it? You see, I would argue that the marriage vow is one of the most important commitments that you will ever make. So what does Jesus say about marriage and divorce? I want to look at a parallel passage of Scripture later on, because Jesus didn't just address this in the Sermon on the Mount. He addressed it later on in Matthew chapter 19. Starting in verse 3, it says, Some Pharisees came and tried to trap him with this question. Should a man be allowed to divorce his wife for just any reason? And Jesus said, haven't you read the scriptures? Jesus replied, they record from the beginning that God made them male and female. And he said, this explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife and the two are united into one. Since they are no longer two but one, let no one split apart what God has joined together. See, in the answer that Jesus gives, he tells us why the oath or why the vow in marriage is so important. Jesus says that it binds people together in marriage. Now, let me ask you this. Who binds people together? Is it the judge that binds people together? Is it simply a marriage license that binds people together? Is it the Elvis impersonator at the drive through wedding in Las Vegas that binds people together? No, who binds people together? God. Look at what it says. What God has joined together. You see, the marriage vow is so important, it's because it's something that God joins together. And he says, don't let any human, don't let any human tear asunder, don't let any human break it apart. Sometimes we take marriage for granted or we take the vows for granted. We don't understand that what is happening is, is that two lives are becoming one in Christ. Two lives are becoming one. There, there is a, a spiritual union that takes place. There is, it's more than just a physical union. Marriage is more than just the physical. There is a spiritual union that takes place when we make those vows to one another. Something spiritually happens and there is a binding of two that become one. I remember that shortly after I, I came here, there was a, an older couple, well advanced in, in years, that had been married for, uh, I believe it was close to 70 years they had been married. And uh, the husband had some severe physical problems, and the wife, even as older as she was, was taking care of him. And when he passed away, she couldn't even attend his funeral because shortly after, she ended up in the hospital, and less than a week later, she passed away. Why? 
Was she sick? No, not at the time, but there was a brokenness of heart. There is something that you will see that, that happens. And you talk to anybody that has, been, that has been married and loses their spouse, they feel as if they've lost a part of themselves. And that's why breaking this oath or this vow in divorce is so painful because it's not just simply breaking up like a dating relationship is. There is something more significant about the union that takes place and the vow that takes place in marriage and, and, and that vow is a spiritual union that is under God. So what happens, the, the religious leaders, it brings up an important question because they, they know the law, but they're compelled to ask this question, Matthew 19, 7, why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give a wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Why is that? So if this is so binding, then why did, why did Moses give us a way out? Why did Moses give this certificate of, of, of divorce? Doesn't that mean that God allows for a way out? And, and when we take a look to fully understand this, you need some historical context. You see, in Moses' day, unlike today, divorce was often initiated by the husband. Usually, women did not have many rights. They weren't even able to, to work or to gain an income. That's why if, a, if a, a woman's husband had passed away and she became a widow, she was often very vulnerable because she didn't carry in uh, the, the ability to be able to be a breadwinner or to bring in finances into the house. She had very little rights. And so, Scripture stated that a man could divorce his wife for indecency. Deuteronomy chapter 24, 1, if a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and gives it to her and sends her from his house. Now, interpreting this law, the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders of that day, taught that divorce could be granted really pretty much for any reason they called indecency, as long as they filed the right paperwork. This would, they, they would divorce their wives. Something ridiculous is maybe burning dinner. If, if she burned dinner, he, he might say, I'm done with you. Having a bad attitude, not cleaning the house, or maybe talking to another man uh, out in, in public, or an inability to bear children. There were all kinds of things that were going on in which men were taking advantage of women, and they would be in the relationship until there was something they didn't like, and they would call it indecency, and as long as they just signed the right paperwork, they could just send her away. There was a misunderstanding of Deuteronomy chapter 24, which was really given as an instruction to protect the woman who was being divorced. In Deuteronomy, God was putting an emphasis on the divorce certificate to protect women so that if a husband divorced her, she had proof that she could go out and remarry again legally and therefore not be punished or reduced to begging by means of survival. It appears then that, that God opened the door for the possibility of divorce, right? Right? But under what conditions? And the, the answer is really only in the case of uncleanness. And that's just not, not taking a bath or a shower. When talking about uncleanness, that's, that's different. Again, able to point to something specific and say, this is a reason for her uncleanness. This is a, this is a reason for his or her, her uncleanness. Therefore, a reason for divorce. It was really intended to be a limiting factor. And intended to build a fence around marriage, to protect the woman in marriage, and to really build a, a protection around marriage. 
Next week, we're going to see a reference that Jesus says, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And we might say, oh, see there, I can get retribution. But really, what we're going to see is this wasn't for the purpose of vengeance, but to limit vengeance, to put a, a, a fence around it. And that's what the instructions on divorce were meant to limit divorce by saying you can only get a divorce if you can identify or point to or prove to something that had been done wrong. And if it happened, then a certificate had to be issued. You had to sign your name on it. You had to go public with the fact that you were breaking your word until death do us part. You had to go public with that, which meant that divorce is meant to be a sober and serious thing, almost like a funeral or the death of something created by God. And you have to have a good reason for it. However, not long before Jesus was born, there was a group of Jewish religious scholars that began to shift the emphasis of what God had told Moses. They said that what's really important here is the certificate of divorce, not really the reason behind it. And so they shifted the focus from the reason to the certificate and basically saying, as long as you, as long as you have that you do it the right way, as long as you have the piece of paper to explain it, you're okay, you can go on and, 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 and get, get on with your lives. Typical, similar to our no-fault divorce that we have here in the U.S. And as they began to argue for a very liberal interpretation for uncleanness, they got it watered down to those things that we talked about before, such as you burning the dinner and anything else like that. In fact, we have evidence of people getting divorced over those kinds of things uh, that we talked about, and uh, there's even archaeological evidence of a woman who even had written uh, a divorce to her husband. So in the day and age in which Jesus lived, it was a very progressive society, and in fact, divorce and remarriage were widespread in Greek and Roman cultures, and they'd crept into Jewish culture as well extensively when Jesus was alive. So let's go back to Matthew chapter 5 and verse 31 again and 32. He said, it's been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. If I tell you, anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. What's Jesus doing? What's he doing here? What's he, what's he saying here? Jesus is redefining the importance of matter, and he's talking about the importance of keeping our commitments, but he's also talking about the importance of the heart. And he's going back, and he's outlining some things here that it's not simply a matter of signing a piece of paper, but a vow and a commitment in marriage means more than just that. To gain more clarity on this discussion, There's a parallel passage again in Matthew chapter 19. Let's go back there in verse 8. Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you, anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality marries another woman, commits adultery. Now, let me just say this. God never commands divorce. He permits it. He never commands it. He permits it. What does he command? He commands love empowered by forgiveness. He commands love empowered by forgiveness. In fact, I once heard a pastor say this, adultery is grounds for divorce, but it's also grounds for forgiveness. It's also grounds for forgiveness. God may permit divorce in the area of sexual immorality or adultery, but the true heart is always towards forgiveness and reconciliation. Again, Psalm 15, 4, when we're talking about this, says that keeping, it's keeping a promise even when it hurts. 
Now, it doesn't always work, right? It doesn't always work. Why? Because in Matthew chapter 19, Jesus spoke to the real issue because of the hardness of their hearts. Because of the hardness of their heart. Now, there's oftentimes a hardness of heart. Maybe it's just one in the relationship. Maybe it's both in the relationship. And divorce might not have a workable, or there might not be a workable solution. Divorce may be the only way, but it's never the preferred outcome. It's always a reluctant accommodation. Jesus tells them from the beginning, this was not so. In other words, this was not God's intent. God's intent was never for divorce. That was never God's intent. However, his intent was to join a man and a woman together permanently, not temporarily. It was, to, it was intended so that they would, they would love him and they would love each other. It was intended that they would help and serve and encourage and strengthen each other no matter what. But divorce is always a proof that someone's heart had hardness, that there was a hardness of heart that had developed within someone's heart. Someone broke the vows. Someone broke someone else's heart. Whatever the excuse, somebody stopped standing on their promises. Somebody stopped proving their oath and their vows. Their yes was no longer yes. Their no was no longer no. Something special had. And let's be honest. Marriage is hard. Anybody who's married will tell you marriage is hard. It, 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 there is, a, there is a, a difficulty to it. And it's hard to keep the marriage vows. It's hard to keep your word. It's hard to keep special commitments. And when we make a vow in marriage or promise to keep our word, we're saying, you know what? I'm going to do for you what I won't do for anybody else. So what do we do as a result of hearing this? What do we do as a result of, of, of hearing this this morning? Again, keeping in mind, uh, how, how, what, what is it that we need to change when it comes to our promises and when it comes to our view of marriage, I think the first thing we learn is that there is an importance to making sobering commitments. When we make commitments, that's a very real thing. It's not something to be taken lightly. No matter what the commitment is, whether it's the marriage vow commitment or whether you're giving your word, taking on commitments and making, uh, saying yes is something that is very sobering. Do the people around you believe that what you say is what you'll do? Do you have that kind of integrity that when you say something, people can stand on your word that you're going to fulfill what you said you would do? You see, your reputation is often a reflection of your character, and the best way to influence other people is to say and do what you said you would. So review your life and the commitments and ask, am I honoring the commitments? Am I honoring the vows? Am I honoring the commitments that I said I would make? Secondly, if you're, mar if you're married, let me ask you this. How are you doing in honoring the vows that you made to your spouse? Are you keeping that promise even when it hurts? Are you willing to keep the promise even when it hurts? Often we look at the other person and, and uh, they, aren't, they aren't doing what we think they ought to do and we see it as a justification that maybe we don't have to do what we need to do. That's not. And today I want to ask you to examine what you're doing and what you're not doing and to take a step towards honoring your marriage vows and covenant. William Barclay has some words of wisdom for us today and I want to end with these. I'm going to ask the worship team to come back. 
He says this, we will regard all promises as sacred if we remember that all promises are made in the presence of God. That all promises are made in the presence of God. Finally today, I just want to encourage you, if you have been hurt by divorce, if you've been hurt because somebody has broken their word to you, if you've experienced that pain, there's healing for you today. Jesus speaks with all grace and patience on this subject today, and he understands the pain, and he understands injustice, and he understands the idea of hardness of heart today, and there is healing, and there is hope. If you're the one that is hardened of heart today, there is forgiveness. Perhaps you've hardened your heart against your spouse, but perhaps you've experienced some kind of pain, or you've hardened your heart, or you've allowed certain things to get in, and you're not wanting to reconcile. There is healing today and forgiveness today for you. There's healing and reconciliation today. You see, he's able to restore. Jesus is able to restore and heal if we will draw near to him. Friends, you can trust Jesus. You know why you can trust Jesus? Because Jesus never failed to keep his word. Jesus never failed to keep his word. How do I know that? Because there was a covenant that God had made. He made a covenant with Abraham. And in fact, uh, uh, he asked Abraham to, 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 to make a sacrifice to him and to, to cut that sacrifice in half. And that was a covenant-making thing. And when two people would make a covenant, they would, they would sacrifice an animal, they would divide it in two parts, then they would walk through it and they would say, let it be done to me what has been done to this animal if I don't keep my word or my covenant. But Abraham had fell into, fell into a trance, fell into sleep, and it was God who walked through and walked through alone saying to us, if you, if I, it, 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 listen, if I don't keep my end of the covenant, let it be done to me. But if you don't keep your end of the covenant, let it be done to me. And that's what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. He kept his word because greater love has no one than this. Then he lay down his life for his friend. Jesus Christ knows what it is to keep a promise even when it hurts. God kept a promise even when it hurt to the laying down of his own son. So we can trust God's word. Unlike anything else, we can trust God's word. We can trust God's love. And that's the example that we have before us. And that's why it's so critical of believers of Jesus. Christ to be salt and light and to keep our word, to keep our word, to honor our commitment. Let's bow our heads today. And let me just ask you today, first of all, do you need healing in your life today? Have you experienced the pain that has come from somebody breaking a promise? And today you'd say, you know, pastor, I need healing. I'm carrying around some hurt and some pain from relationship that was broken. I'm carrying around some hurt and some pain from that. And you'd say, Pastor, I'm in need of healing today. Will you slip up your hand today? I'm in need of healing today. I need the Lord to bring healing into my life today. Thank you. Secondly, today, maybe you're here and you say, you know, I haven't done a good job of keeping my word. There are some things I haven't done and I need God's forgiveness today. I need his forgiveness 